Welcome to the CGOB Sports Show podcast. In this episode, we talk to the head coach of the Victoria St. Boniface Legionnaires. Just won their first MJBL title in 13 years. Jason Evanochko. And then we'll talk to Murata Tesh of The Athletic, Winnipeg Jets beat reporter on the Jets offseason. What he's doing as a beat writer when there's no hockey going on. That's all coming up on the podcast. Now, there's history made in the MJBL last night. The Manitoba Junior Baseball League, the St. Boniface Legionnaires, snapping a 13-year title drought as they pounded Elmwood 11-0 in five innings to sweep the best-of-five championship series, their first title since 2010. Head coach of the Legionnaires is Jason Evanoshko, and he joins us now. And Jason, I'm curious, after winning the trophy last night, how'd you sleep? Honestly, I... uh was up till about 4 a.m. just sitting there and uh, just kind of going over kind of how things played out and just still still feeling a little little surreal how it uh, it all unfolded. How long have you been coaching the Legionnaires? Uh, it's my my second year. I, I took uh, took on the team in, in uh, first time with juniors uh, last year and uh, yeah, second year. So. When you get to to be the coach of this team in a league that's been dominated by the Elmwood Giants, what are your expectations as a coach when you first take over the job? Um, I mean, the the first thing was just looking at the team and the players um, that we had, and and working with within our group. And from there, you know, we just we go out and and play the game and and see what we can do. Um, I think. We had a young group last year, still had a young group this year, but just at the beginning of this season, we had a, um, a, a team that I thought could could go really far. And obviously that was borne out because you, you just won the championship, but looking yeah. at, at how the... We'll, t- we'll go through with, uh, the regular season here first. Uh, what did you think of, of how things went going into the playoffs, and did your expectations change from the start of the season to when the postseason began? No, I, I think you know just just the belief in and what the players' abilities were. Um, it was just trying to find a way to to get back on track. I think to start the season, it's it's always tough for for all teams. We're waiting for the kids to get back from college and from university to to get things underway and and trying to get a, a cram a season in and then get into the playoffs. And you know we started off um, a little rough, dropped some games that went to, to extra innings. And then we went on a, a pretty good run, uh, got ourselves in position to be up top of the standings. Um, that was that was really tight. Um, you know, everybody was was pretty pretty even even at that point. But then we went on a, a little bit of a, a lull, uh, dropped uh, dropped some games, um, kind of rolling right into into playoffs. So it was just trying to find a way to get get the players and get their confidence back and and just that um, you know let them know that they're they're able to accomplish it. Let's go into the playoffs now. Round one, it's a best of three against Interlake Blue Jays. You lose game one, 10-7. And a loss in your season is over. You win 20-1 to one in game two. Have you been in a game like that before? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've I've been probably, probably on both sides of it, right? Uh, and it's just one of those days where... You you show up and just things aren't aren't going right for one team either way. And typically, what happens in every baseball game I've been a part of, it's usually one error that starts it, and then it's a snowball from there. Luckily, uh, we were on the the right side of it. And then you win it game three, three to one, to advance to round two. And then in round two, you fall behind two games to none to Carillon. 
And so what's the, the attitude in a best of five there knowing you can't lose again? Yeah, the the guys showed up for the challenge, right? I mean, the, the pressure was on. Um, they had to they had to perform. And we got uh, pitcher eligibility back from, from one of our, our top arms uh, to kind of kick things started on that Wednesday. And we were able to, to roll roll from there. 4-1 win in that Wednesday game three, but then 6-5 win in game number four. And then you get things done 6-5 in a game that was disturbed by weather, was it not? Yeah, yeah, that was that was tough. Uh, on Friday, you know, just the weather wasn't wasn't co- cooperating, and it was it was disappointing to have to leave that game. Everything was going right in our favor, uh, and that just just allowed that break for for Caroline to um, come back and and bring some life back, and and they did right. They started off we finished that fourth inning when we resumed they they got five pulled within uh you know within one and then both pitchers were just able to do the job um not allowing any runs on either side and and stay the six five final yeah because you're up six nothing are you not going into the the rain delay yeah yeah Yeah. so just same thing it was just kind of regrouping and letting them know and you know getting the outs and and doing what we could to to get guys on and trying to score and and we 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 did enough what does it say about your team that you know it it starts to slip away but but they're able to just cinch it at the last moment to make sure you get to the final it's it's the things we were talking about uh throughout the year um just just being able to have the mental toughness um and the confidence and staying positive you know good or bad, uh, staying on top and, and having that belief in, in their ability. And, uh, you know, they they showed it. And so you get to the final against the Elmwood Giants. The fact that they'd won five years in a row, I know that they maybe weren't as dominant this year as some of those seasons, but was that a daunting task or did you even worry about that at all? We we, we prepared the guys. I mean, we knew, you know, their, their history. Um, we knew the players on the other side. We know... The coaching staff on the other side that's a, the well coached team and you know there was by no means um you know was it going to be easy we knew we were in in for a tough tough battle um and i th- i think our play while we were hot in the regular season just helped we we were on uh the winning side of, of those league games for the majority and i think it just also showed them that they would be able to do it and we just came together at the right time so game one was Monday. You win seven one. Game two at home. You have uh, you fall behind five nothing. Rally to win seven six. What was that like to to rally in that way to move within a game of the title? Huge, huge. I mean, it's it's a different series. We dropped that game. Uh, we didn't start off our best. Uh, we fell behind early got uh bats weren't going we made some changes and everybody that came into that game or moved a position or everybody on the bench they they all did a job um and just we we, we crawled our way back and and came out on top what was the feeling in the dugout when you got that final out in game two? Oh, just it, it just it was so lifting right i mean the the bench was down and you know when we, we were getting back in you could see it was up and I mean there was just joy and excitement and, and I think that was uh, you 
you know, what was going to determine what happened in the rest of the series. And then to go out to, to Koski Field last night and win 11 nothing just it needs just five innings to, to get the title done. Did, did you wake up yesterday thinking, you know what, we're going to do it tonight? We, I had a good feeling that uh, we, we had a chance. Um, I did not expect a score like that. I mean, Tyler's a, a great pitcher. Uh, he held us to a 2-1 game um, in our league, and uh, I, I thought we were going to be in another one-run game, low-scoring one-run. And we, you know, prepared the guys, you know, knew what to expect, and we, we were on, on them right from the get-go. And, yeah, it was just nobody could have seen that one coming. And so when that final out's recorded in the fifth, what did that feel like to know your champions? Oh, it's it's awesome. Like it's it's hard to express how good it feels, how good it feels for, you know, the the organization, for the players. Not not a lot of them have been able to experience anything like that. Um, you know, we both my boys were were lucky enough and coaching been lucky enough to to go pretty far in 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 baseball and some of these things and we have a lot of silver. So, I mean, this uh getting the gold uh, getting the win was was special, and I mean we were on a 13 year drought with uh, with Legionnaires, so I mean this was this was great uh, great experience. Is this the pinnacle of your baseball career? So far, so far. I, I hope uh, uh, there's a there's a lot more a lot more to come. So what happens now? Uh, the season is over for you, or is there any? Is there another level after you win the MJBL? Well, unfortunately, um, there's there's no westerns uh, this year for for these guys to to play out. Um, best uh, best we can do is go and support uh, the Manitoba representatives and, and the host uh, of the nationals this year in Stonewall. Um, for myself, uh, I'm part of our, our 18U uh, St. James uh, A's team with my younger son. So be going, going there to help, uh, help out this, uh, this weekend with provincials and then looking, uh, looking at the fall with, uh, with my son going on to his third year in college. So, so is it, uh, did you instill the love of baseball in your kids or did they just gravitate to it naturally? Uh, I mean, some might say it was, was a little more encouragement for me, but I think just the, the boys, I mean, sports has been always something a part of, uh, you know, my life. Um, and you know, they, they've all got into it in at a young age. Um, you know, I think, uh, baseball, there's, there's a few things. I mean, having some great coaches, I mean, on the other side with, with Donnie Smith at Elmwood Giants, he coached both my boys every other year through their AAA career. Right. So they've had great coaching. Um, they, they've had a lot of success with him. And I think that helped kind of propel, um, you know, where they are right now with their baseball career and, and, and what's to come. So to to beat then Elmwood, did the, how did that feel to beat a coach that helped out your family so much? Yeah, it's, uh, it's you know, mixed emotions for sure, right? I mean, there there's uh, the guys on the other side that, that helped get, you know, my boys to, to where they are. And at the same time, you know, here's a chance to, to compete against them and, um, and, yeah, it was it was a great great feeling uh, for sure, and and very thankful for for them as well. Now, are you a Blue Jays fan? 
got to, got to cheer for Canada. Um, but honestly, uh, you know, professional sports, I, I follow, got some teams, got some favorite players, um, but always kind of just been, you know, the love to do it. And, and, and now that I'm older and, and not playing anymore, you know, coaching has been, uh, been something that's been a, been an honor and a pleasure to do. So your rooting interests aren't at the professional level. They're watching your kids, coaching your kids, and, and coaching the the Legionnaires now. Yeah, yeah. Hey, the Jays, Jays get there. I'm I'm cheering. Right, Bombers. I'm there. Jets. I'm there. Hundred percent. But uh, definitely, definitely rooting for my boys. Fair enough, Jason. Appreciate your time tonight. Thanks for this, and a big congrats again on this uh, amazing accomplishment for the Legionnaires. Thank you so much. Take care. Jason Evanochko is the head coach of the St. Boniface Legionnaire, snapping a 13-year title drought, winning the MJBL championship last night. Well, Marat, things have uh, have quieted down for sure in uh, in the off season here. How are things going in the writing about the Jets territory that you weighed in? One of the things that just stuns me every summer, even though I see it kind of in our metrics and our numbers is that the interest doesn't go away. Like, there are times, Christian, when, like, for example, I just did a couple of mailbag pieces and got, like, you know, hundreds of questions, at least over 100 for these things, and then the amount of readership and the engagement in the comments, it's it's pretty crazy to me. Like, I, I don't know if it's, you know, without the games, now we can do some deeper dive thinking or some big picture stuff, or if it's all the angst around what the roster's going to be, but uh, the answer is, it's been it's been really good. It's been nice to kick my feet up, enjoy some sunshine, all that. And it's pretty cool that you know the folks who are reading and asking questions and sort of debating all Jets things are are still as dialed in as they are. What what's the dialogue like with with the fans at the Athletic? Is it is it very measured? Do you get a lot of like crazy fan takes? What do you find is the is the general balance there? I honestly think and i have to say this because it's my job but it is a truth that i hold um, that the athletic comment section is my favorite part of the internet especially the winnipeg jets comment section you know from time to time i'll I'll go and see does every do all the other writers have it this good and i'll like poke around the toronto or the new york area and like yeah there can be some pretty aggressive hot take factories But I think there's something about the way that we approached it in Winnipeg. I don't know if it was, you know, I was a smaller name when I showed up, right? I mean, The Athletic was my first major hockey platform. I just feel like there's this community of people there who care very deeply, not just about the Jets, but about making sure the comment section is reasonable. So, you know, we talk a lot about arguing the idea and not the person or, you know, calling out the the thought or the decision, but not whoever's writing it or making it. And it sounds a little bit cheesy, but I don't know. I don't know if you scroll through there. My, my experience has always been that, you know, I'll write something, I'll put my heart into it and then somebody will comment. And then I feel like I learn, uh, you know, plenty. I was going to say at least as much from the comment section when people are just sort of debating and thinking out loud. And I'm, I'm kind of hooked on that. Like it's a big part of of the joy i guess it's it's a big part of me feeling every day like like i i have a connection with with folks but you do get criticized sometimes right oh for sure yeah um and you know i i write things that not everybody agrees with all the time you know if you whatever decision it's going to be but i feel 
Like, what would be a good example of this? Um, like, for example, in a mailbag this week, one of the questions was if you could undo any decision that the Winnipeg Jets have made in 2.0 history, what would it be? And so I, you know, I chewed over a whole bunch of options. How did they handle the Vegas expansion draft or, you know, trading up to take Logan Stanley or this signing or that signing or whatever else it's going to be. And I settled on when Paul Maurice left the team mid season in the summer before that, you know, I'm fairly convinced he knew that his heart wasn't necessarily in it. And he had some conversations with Kevin Sheveldayoff and Mark Chipman and kind of collectively, they all decided to give it one more kick at the can. And so my big argument was by doing it mid season, you take away the team's ability to have a proper coaching search. Um, Dave Lowry steps in and he does the best he can, but it essentially becomes a wasted season. And I think the Jets would be so much further ahead if they'd had the courage of their conviction to make that change earlier and that's, you know, it's a, it's a take, it's a, it's a strong opinion. And, you know, in, in writing, I voice it strongly, I think, and not everybody is going to agree with that. And there are some folks who say, well, you know what, I, I really just don't have it in my heart to criticize Mark Chipman. He brought the team back. Others say, well, Paul Marie should have went years ago. And I just think that like, even when they're, when folks are saying, Marat, you're wrong about this or that, or the other thing, it's always about, or at least the things I remember, maybe I only see the roses, but like, um, the, it's always about the idea, Marat, you're wrong, and here's why I think you're wrong, not Marat, you're wrong, and you're an absolute idiot. And and I think that <laughs> the kind of dialogue we have just makes it, a, I don't know, I get a kick out of it. I'm, it's one of my favorite things about the job. Yeah, and that that was a, definitely a take because you, te- you did a good job teasing it. You did a two-part mailbag. Part one, you get asked a question, you list a bunch of options and say, all right, we'll get to it in, in mailbag two. And you never mentioned the Maurice thing at all in mailbag one. So when I when I got to that reading the article, I thought, oh, okay. And then you start thinking about it. You read that you make a persuasive argument because, I mean, that, that turned out to be a bit of a, a disaster. And the, even, you know, Rick Bonus comes in now and he was not their first choice. He ends up being a guy they hire because Barry Trotz wasn't available. And you just wonder, you know, it's kind of a butterfly effect of what ends up happening with this team. And now Pierre-Luc Dubois is gone and Blake Wheeler has gone. And, and we don't know what happens with Shifley and Hellebuck, but it's definitely worth pondering what could have been different if you just do a coaching search that summer, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a little bit blue sky. Like maybe Rick bonus was the only, was the only answer. And you needed somebody like that who uh, is a veteran enough and who doesn't really worry about being criticized for what he says publicly. So he doesn't mind calling out the team for a lack of pushback or changing the captaincy situation. Maybe that, maybe there's something magical and unique to bonus about that. But my argument is if the jets had made the progress that they did in this past season, kind of a year ago, and they were heading into this year with, you know, Shifley and Hellebuck still on the team. They'd had a little bit more time to to play, I want to say, a more accountable round of hockey uh, and, and all those sorts of things. I think that the bonus impact would have been greater by now. And if it wasn't him, because he was, you know, still employed at the time that, you know, that Paul Maurice stepped down, um, then perhaps somebody else would have been able to sort of step in and make those same changes. And I just think that the more that you kick certain decisions down the road, uh, the there is such thing as staying too long at the fair or staying past your welcome or, or a coach's message outlasting its efficacy. And I think that happened in Winnipeg. And, you know, I think that Winnipeg is 
is looking forward to and fans are looking forward to this sort of next generation of players and figuring out what the post-Wheeler, at least, and maybe post-Shifley, and hopefully not post-Halibut, given his impact and all of that. I think people are curious about what that era looks like. But amidst it all, it's the same person at the helm and in Kevin Cheveldayoff. He's been here since day one, and I think fans are starting to wonder, okay, you know, different coaches have come and gone, players are coming and going. He's still here. How much rope does he have and is his seat hot at all going into this season I don't think his seat is hot coming from Mark Chipman or ownership or True North Sports and Entertainment I think that Kevin Sheveldayoff has largely delivered exactly what's been hoped for um, in that when pushed up against the wall and sort of painted into a corner I meant to say and you know has his back up against the wall with these trades of Pierre-Luc Dubois or Andrew Kopp or the most recent pieces of work that he's done, I think Winnipeg has largely sort of escaped with this sense of, oh, hey, they did pretty good considering the situation that they were in. And I know that as recently as last summer when the Jets missed the playoffs, there's a huge fan swell to say, hey, it's time to make changes in that regard. But I think that ownership wants and values Sheveldayoff's consistency, appreciates his ability to sort of squeeze out as much of those moments as he can, and doesn't really, I guess, mind. I don't know if that's the right word, but this sense of Sheveldayoff being more patient than he is proactive, more reactive than proactive in terms of handling some of these things. I think the overall organization's philosophy is that loyalty and long-term thinking is a good thing. So I've never gotten the sense especially, you know, whenever Mark Chipman has made public comments about Shovel Day Off, it's always been staunch support. So I think that that, you know, whatever fans may think, I think that that's a partnership that uh, the Jets organization is a big fan of right now. Yeah, and I think what what I'm reading from some fans online on your message board and in other, or in other spots, and of course we always have to take the internet with a grain of salt because a lot of people aren't on the internet making comments uh, in terms of who's fans of the team. But, okay, if, you know, just doing good enough to make the playoffs is that enough right is this team actually built to win a stanley cup and i don't think they are but in your opinion looking at the roster as it stands today how close are they to being a threat in the western conference and is there anything chevy could do to change that if not yeah i mean in a big picture sort of way i honestly think this is a conversation that you know i get the senses in a lot of jets fans hearts and i hope people consider like what is the goal of your hockey team? And, you know, there have been lots of, you know, roster turmoil issues and Bufflin leaves the team and the defense is porous for a while and then Lina gets traded and then Dubois wants out and all of this sort of stuff. It always feels like there's a fire to put out. Um, and I think Winnipeg, by sort of flirting with the playoff cut line, by making the playoffs, uh, you know, more often than they don't, has probably done enough to make itself a sustainable organization. But if you're a Jets fan, like, do you, are you content with that? Is it something that's comfortable knowing that you might have a chance to squeak in and make some noise if you go on a run? Or do you like those big boom bust cycles of high picks when the team is awful and, uh, you know, long rebuilds and, and, uh, or aggressive rebuilds or whatever your philosophy on that is? And I think that that's something that is in Jets fan dialogue right now in terms of how close they are. I mean, if they got to keep Mark Scheifele and Connor Hellebuck on this season's roster, I actually rate it on paper pretty comparable, if not perhaps even slightly improved compared to, to last season. I would, I would see it as a team that has a chance to make the playoffs. 
I don't see a Stanley Cup fronter, that's for sure. And, um, you know, that may be good enough for some and disappointing for others. So why do you think they're better now than they were before? Well, I rate, I guess, to have Dubois go out and then Velarde, Ayafalo, and Kapari come in, I think that's a slight loss. And as much as I credit Winnipeg for doing um, for doing the best it could for that situation. I like that trade return, but I still think Pierre-Luc Dubois is the best player in that mix. I think that's uh, that's a decline. But I do give them credit for they'll have full seasons from Nemesnikov, from Nino Niederreiter, from Cole Perfetti, ideally, given his health, um, compared to quarter seasons in all three of those guys' cases, effectively, um, last season, which I think sort of saws off a little bit of that. I guess I'm not expecting the same kind of all-world performance from Josh Morrissey, but I still believe in him. And I guess maybe I'm also banking a little bit on a, on a return to form or a little bit of health from Neil Pionk. Um, but I guess the, the, I'm going with depth with Villardi and Ayafalo and Perfetti and, and Niederreiter and Nemestikov kind of fleshing out that top nine in a way that Winnipeg really didn't have access to until the very end of last season. So deeper, but maybe less like at the top end? Yeah, I think people underestimate how good Dubois was just because he's such an unpopular figure here now. I mean, that first half of his season was incredible. And when you look at why Winnipeg was towards the top of the standings for half the season, the fact that they had two number one centers, Dubois being one of them, Shifley being the other, that was it. And Dubois disappeared for a little while, and so did Winnipeg's results, even though the team got healthy. So that's kind of the X factor in all of this for me is the amount that depth can make up for the impact he had for at least half the year where he was quite, quite near a top center uh, capability. So do you think that Chevy's done for the off season? I mean, if he is, it's a problem (laughs) in my opinion, because it would still involve uncertainty for Shifley and Hellebuck. And maybe he can figure out ways to extend them short term. Maybe he can figure out trade deadline deals. But if Winnipeg's in the thick of it, the trade deadline, that becomes an awkward proposition. I also think that he's got unfinished work on defense where I think it's eight waivers exempt uh, or sorry, non waivers exempt players before you even get to Declan Chisholm. Um, and, uh, you know, a sense from Logan Stanley, a sense from Billy Hainala, there's a, there's a vibe that's play me or trade me. And they certainly don't have to listen to those players because depth is good. And, you know, you can send Hainala to the minors and be just fine with it. But I think that, um, with a little bit of cap space to spare yet with a couple of contracts signing in, you know, in Stanley, for example, in Kupari as well. Um, I just think that, uh, that yeah, that, that there should be more work probably on defense. Whether we get that or not is another issue. Yeah, there's just such a log jam. And, and you, you know, you, you talk about that off season where Paul Maurice has talked back into staying that same off season. They, they acquire Brendan, Brendan Dillon, pardon me, and Nate Schmidt. And they, they've been able to recoup the draft capital back from that. But in a sense, that kind of blocked the likes of Hainala and Chisholm and to some degree now Logan Stanley with Dylan Sandberg taking that sixth role. Uh, is that a move? Do you think the the Jets in their heart of hearts regret or this, the presence of Schmidt and Dylan in the locker room? Is that as big a, or if not more of a deal than what they can do on the ice? For me, I think that that's a big deal. I think that like the moment they acquired Brendan Dillon and Nate Schmidt, you know, my phone blew up with people who had covered them, who had knew them, who had worked with them in some capacity, basically just saying that these are first class people. You're going to, it's going to be an absolute delight to deal with them. And that's great. I, I, I value that. I think that that's important. 
But I think that the issue with them or the important thing about them is that they can both play. Um, you know, this wasn't the Matt Hendricks, Mark Letestu mold of player. I don't think either had a great first season with the Winnipeg Jets. But last year, Brendan Dillon, for me, was, uh, you know, an average top four defenseman, which is an impressive feat. I think that um, the more organized and structured the Jets got, the more impactful he was. Nate Schmidt certainly not returning home that $5.95 million worth of impact. But on that third pairing as well, often with Dylan Sandberg, those guys posted great metrics together. So for me, I see the issues. Like I see that that's an inefficient contract, Nate Schmidt. Neil Pionk is certainly two down years now kind of in a row. Um, and it's not necessarily cap efficient, nor does it make room for the Hainalas and Chisholms and otherwise of the world, Jonathan Kovacevic in Montreal now. But at least they can play. It's not just about having efficient uh, contracts or cheap contracts, but as long as the guys can deliver results. And I think that, by and large, those guys have. The issue, gosh, this is long-winded, but the issue is what, what you said, is if they're blocking superior players. And so credit to Dylan Sandberg for stepping up and, and taking that job. That's an impressive accomplishment for him and something the Jets can look forward to. I don't think the Jets are as high on Ville Hainala as, uh, as many are. And I'm not sure that they believe in Declan Chisholm so much they're going to move heaven and earth to make that roster spot either. Um, and that's where a little bit of tension comes in. Like maybe the types of qualities the Jets have drafted for and have spent years and years developing aren't the same ones as the, as the head honchos or the NHL club really values at this stage. And I get the sense, Murat, that perhaps the, the feeling amongst fans is, is not so much like, why don't you see anything in this guy that we see? Because they obviously have seen him play more than a lot of the fans have. But the fact that we don't know, right? Vili Handelov just hasn't really been given that run in the NHL in a spot that, that he can succeed in. And that's part of being a team that thinks it can win now. You don't have the time to, you know, be bad and see if a guy can just play for a year or two, right? Yeah, there's this, uh, you know, the adage of like, why play a veteran who you know is going to be, you know, mediocre in his role when you can play a younger player who might be mediocre, but might develop from it too, something to that effect. And um, at a much cheaper cost. At a much cheaper cost, absolutely. And like, I would see that argument for the Jets. I especially saw that argument for the Jets before Schmidt and Dylan because I think. I think they're a cut above the guys that Winnipeg tried to shoehorn into those jobs before. And for me, that's the Derek Forbert year, the Nathan Beaulieu years, uh, Lucas Biza, Anthony Bittetto. You can go into that era and you're wondering, well, you know, why didn't Winnipeg play its younger players at that stretch when all those guys eventually left as free agents or, you know, Beaulieu was traded as well. Um, I think I'm less put off by it now even though Hainala, say, for example, or Chisholm are further along in their development and probably superior players to the options a few years ago. But I'm less missed by it personally in my analysis just because I believe in Brendan Dillon in getting that job done, especially down the stretch into the playoffs. And, you know, I rate Nate Schmidt on that third pairing as certainly not a top four guy at this stage of his career, but that third pairing did have success. So I value that. I guess the problem is just the price tag, right? For a third pairing guy getting paid almost $6 million. And and what are you ultimately going to get on the market for him? Yeah, I think in terms of a trade, you're, you're getting next to nothing for somebody who makes that kind of contract at this stage. And you've seen that for even more impactful players like a Ryan Johansson or what have you, or a Kevin Hayes, where, you, you know, the they're playing in higher spots on their depth charts up at forward, but they just make so much money that the the asset value just doesn't exist. So you're, you know, I think you're stuck between a rock and a hard place with Schmidt. And the only 
the thing that you would you take away is that, well, hey, if we put him with Dylan Sandberg and we play them third pairing minutes, it's not as tough as the top four. And as a matter of fact, we outscore teams when they're on the ice together. And, you know, maybe there's some more efficient contracts elsewhere or less efficient contracts elsewhere. But as long as he's not actively sinking the team, I think you take that. And again, especially with his impact in the room, it's not efficient, but it's not an emergency for me. Right. Uh, a couple more questions and I'll let you go. You've been very generous with your time today. Uh, something that I, I talked about when Blake Wheeler was bought out, a, a move we all saw coming, is that I think his number should be retired when the time comes for such a thing, when his career is done. Do you think that is something that we will see happen in this market? I think so. And I'm not going with any knowledge inside, but I think, Christian, I think that's a great idea. And I think that True North really wants its legacy to be, you know, curated. Is that the word? I think they're conscious of what they want their legacy to be. And I think it's no coincidence whatsoever that Dale Howarchuk was the, you know, the statue that was unveiled last year in terms of all the Jets alumni you could choose. I think he was just so beloved and, you know, for his love of Manitoba on and off the ice, um, his standing in the community. And I think that one of the things that Winnipeg has always valued about Blake Wheeler was his leadership and with cancer care and with community organizations and, you know, the, the stories that don't make stories where he's, you know, you know reaching out to kids and uh or like through true north and project 11 and things like that there's so much good work that he's done you add the on ice stuff the accomplishments the 91 point seasons the thousand games the day one jet i think that it's important to the winnipeg jets to honor that sort of thing and i and i wouldn't be surprised if 26 hangs from those rafters now is there anyone else from this era so far of the jets that the 2.0 era that should get consideration like a Brian Little or a Dustin Bufflin. I think they'd be near the top of the list if they would be considered, but what do you think? For me, they're just on the outside looking in, and I guess it's are you a hall of great or a hall of very good sort of sort of person? And I think that just the way that each one exited, each in their individual situations, Bufflin's was a choice, Little's was an injury, and it was before, you know, before his time, really. Um and also perhaps little not maintaining that peak of excellence to the degree that Wheeler did, not having worn the captaincy. I just, I think for me, for me, it would be Wheeler is, is an easy argument to make. And then after that, you're sort of looking at, you know, every good player who was there for a really long time. And little would be a great case because of his, I think, uh, I guess, standing within the team and, and sort of what he had meant to the organization. But for me, I, I don't know that he was elite enough on the ice for long enough to, to warrant that. And everyone's got their own standards for what uh, what befits a, a person to get their number retired, right? It's different than being in the Hockey Hall of Fame. A lot of people have their numbers retired that aren't Hall of Famers. But uh, I'll leave you on this in terms of honors. Who's wearing the C in the fall for the Jets? I mean, my money says Adam Lowry. And uh, I think Josh Morrissey is the, the only other name to, to consider behind him. But I think Lowry is somebody who the organization has valued and, and sort of maybe even handpicked to move into a bit more and more of a leadership role as, as the years go by. So I think that's the one. And I think that he'd have the disposition to carry that really well as well. Okay, because I, I think if I were to if you were to put out a poll and maybe this is an article at some point, but uh, who should be the next captain? I think more people might vote Morrissey personally, from what I've heard, ta- heard talking to fans, but I don't think you're going to get a, a giant consensus either way. There's on, there's not really a wrong answer, right? No, you know, I, I put it as a, you know, I do end of season fan polls and I, I think that 
at Christmas time last year, Morrissey might have won 51% to 49. And maybe after the season, it was 52-48 uh, in Lowry's favor. Don't quote me on those numbers, but it's been a soft between those two guys both times. Um, and uh, yeah, for for me, I I think I would vote Lowry in terms of his ability to to endure the, the media circus or whatever it is that comes with uh, dealing with us all of the time. Um, and, but I, I think either would be a good choice at this point. I agree. And do you, I guess, when, do, when would we know? Probably training camp? I guess so. I, I think, you know, perhaps in the case of removing Blake Wheeler's captaincy last year, just in advance of camp beginning, it was the sort of thing they wanted to get out in front of and just kind of get it out of the way in terms of a thing we were talking about all of the time. So I don't know if a captaincy announcement would be made in advance of camp. I actually, that doesn't make as much sense to me as giving them a few days to be on the ice together and sort of feeling good about their, uh, uh, about their choice amongst the group, but maybe I'm completely wrong and they want somebody who's wearing that captaincy right from day one with all the new guys around. So um, that's the era. I don't think we're going to get an announcement today, and I don't think they're going to wait till midseason. All right, Matt. Appreciate your time tonight. Thanks for this, and uh, enjoy the rest of your summer. Thanks a lot, Christian. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you very much for listening to the CJOB Sports Show podcast. If you like what you heard, guess what? You can hear more every weeknight on CJOB from 6.30 to 9 p.m. Thanks again for tuning in. Subscribe if you'd like. We're available on iTunes and other places I'd imagine. So farewell. Until we meet again. So long and thanks for all the fish. So sad that it should come to this. We try to warn you all the day. You may not share our intellect.